I want to welcome you all as we gather to worship today on Memorial uh, weekend, but also, as April said, it's, it's Pentecost, and Pentecost is the birth of the church. It's the time that the Holy Spirit descended upon the church to be the continued presence of Jesus. And last week, we started a, a new series just going through the Bible. Um, I, I want to talk about just how that works and, and God's revelation for a few minutes. And, you know, God reveals himself to us and speaks to us through the Bible in a very unique way. Um, and it's not that God doesn't speak to us in other ways, but the Bible is, is our primary source of, of revelation. How does God reveal himself to us? Well, there's, there's four ways. This is from my tradition, but I, I, I want to share it with you. Uh, it's called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral, and it's kind of four ways that God reveals his will to us and the ways that we can we can really discern uh, God's call. And, and it's four parts, scripture, reason, tradition, and experience. Scripture, reason, tradition, and experience. Now reason, God gave us brain, we're supposed to use it, obviously, but also reason helps us with the other three legs of the quadrilateral. Uh, tradition, God did not stop working in the world when Jesus ascended into heaven. And that's what we're celebrating today. He commissioned the church, right? And so the church is his ongoing presence. The, he called it the body of Christ. Church history is the story of, of God working through flawed humans, obviously, but revealing himself over the centuries. Is What God seems to be doing here, is it consistent with the ways that God has been present within tradition over, over the ages. And experience, uh, you know, Christians, and this, we're actually unique, we don't realize this, but Christians, we, we, deep in our belief, we believe that God interacts with creation. And that's the whole thing about Jesus, right? That is the, the God who dwells among us. The Holy Spirit is his continued presence in the world. And, and we can experience God. And part of prayer is always journeying with the question, how am I experiencing God right now? So experience, tradition, and reason are three equal ways that God reveals himself to us. There, there are three ways that we can discern this still small voice. Is this what I'm hearing, God? Now, Scripture is weighed heavier than the other three. They're not equal. Rather than a four-legged chair, it's like a three-legged chair with, with Scripture being the, the seat that holds them together. Scripture is our primary source of revelation. It grounds us, and it helps understand the other three. It helps make the other three make sense because it's beyond us. It's a gift, and it's larger than us. And I just realized or forgot I had a prop, uh, but I'm not used to playing bass, apparently. April put me on the schedule, and it said it had been 5.9 years since I played. Not five and a half, not six, 5.9, I thought that was really funny. But, um, it, but think of a wind chime, right? And I have a great wind chime, and it's up in my office, but you can visualize a wind chime. You know, wind chime, you have tradition, you have reason, you have experience, are, are those, those pipes of the chime. But scripture is like that clacker, and, and I, that's the, the technical term, the clacker, right? But the clacker, it's it, what makes the music. The wind blows, the spirit touches each pipe making this music and without the clacker you know there, there's not much clarity right yeah the pipes might hit each other if the wind's blowing enough but 
The music, the music happens as the pipes resonate with the clacker, and that's like scripture. Last week, we looked at the whole overarching story of the Bible. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to spend with the Old Testament. Um, afterwards, we're going to go to the, the New Testament. We're going to talk about the difference between the, the Catholic Bible, the Jewish Bible, and the um, Protestant Bible next week. But, but I do want to talk about the Jewish Bible is called the Tanakh. Tanakh. And it's, it's, it has the same books uh, as our Old Testament, the Protestant Old Testament, but the books are in a different order, and I think it's really helpful to understand why they put them in the order that they did, and it really helps us understand the Old Testament. So I, I want to look today at how the Tanakh is divided. It's divided into three parts. Tanakh is actually a Hebrew acronym for Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. That's the law, the prophets, and the writing. The law, the prophets, and the writing. And we're going to look at the Torah today. Next week, we'll look at the prophets, the Nevi'im, and then we'll look at the Ketuvim the week after that. But I think understanding how this fits together is so helpful. Now, in, in Hebrew, Torah means law. It means uh, a guidance. The five books of the Torah are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You may have heard Pentateuch. It literally means five books in, in Greek. That was from the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But the Torah, same thing. The titles of each of these books, they come from the first word in the Hebrew scriptures. And, and all five are traditionally written by Moses. Now, um, it describes in detail Moses' death at the end, and so unless he was incredibly skilled, um, you know, at least he's the main character, let's say, throughout the whole Torah. But looking at the big picture of the Torah, the Torah begins with a description of all creation, but pretty quick, it moves from focusing on all creation to the story of a particular family, the family of Abraham and, and Abraham's descendants. Abraham's family, they grow into a nation, Israel, and then they become enslaved in Egypt, and God sets the slaves free. And that's huge, because the first part of Genesis, the main attribute of God that we learn about in Genesis is God is the creator. And then from Genesis 12 through the end of Genesis, Genesis 50, we move from God being the creator to God being the God who calls. But once we hit Exodus all the way to the end, the main attribute of, that we learn about God is God is the God who saves. So from creator to call to the God who saves. After God releases the slaves, God makes a covenant with Israel through Moses and he gives them the gift of the law, and that was a path for right relationship with God. And as we follow Israel, as they journey to the land that God promised to Abraham, then the Torah ends right at, at, the, at the border of the promised land and describes Moses' farewell to the people and then his death on a mountain uh, overlooking the promised land. That's Torah. That's a very, very, very big picture of the Torah but I want to look a little bit closer, and there's a lot of ways to divide the first five books of the Bible. I give you the, the kind of the easiest, I think, to, to really get the big picture. Uh, that's in six basic sections. The first, we have primeval history, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and then the patriarchs, Genesis 12 through 50, and then Exodus um, 1 through 16, that's the liberation from Egypt. 
And then from Exodus 17 all the way to the end of the book, all the way through Leviticus, it's really what happens up on Mount Sinai. And then we get the journey toward the promised land in Numbers, and then Deuteronomy is Moses' farewell speech, and he has a lot to say. Genesis 1 opens up with creation, right? And we get the macro, then we get the micro. Uh, God creates everything, looks upon his work, says this is very good, and then he rests from his labor. Genesis 1, you get the macro version of that. And then you move to, there's a second account in Genesis 2, and we're probably more uh, familiar with that, and that's the micro. That's, that's God interacting with humans, creating Adam and Eve, the garden, all of that. In the story of the Garden of Eden, we learn that the humans, the first humans, are given the ability to make their own decisions between good and evil, and that, frankly, creates crisis and a loss of innocence. And the point is, each of these stories are going to really reflect on one aspect of the human condition. They are about who we are deep down as humans, why we do what we do, and most important, how God interacts with us. So like Adam and Eve, uh, they're dealing with the question of good and evil, our gift of free will. Now, Adam is, Adam is a word in Hebrew for human. And so the, the point is this, is, this is our story as well. The next story uh, is the next generation of humans. We get Cain and Abel. And it continues the theme of crisis is the point. Competition between the two brothers moves to jealousy. And then jealousy escalates to hostility and finally murder. And one brother kills his brother. God originally had said creation was good, but the crises, they get worse and worse and worse until we get to Genesis 6, verse 5 through 7. It says, The Lord saw the wickedness of humankind, and it was great in the earth, and every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry he made humans on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I have created. People together with animals, creeping things, I love the creeping things, and birds through the air, for I am sorry that I made them. And so the flood story follows, right? And we know the flood. We all went to BBS, or at least those of us who did. And, and God wipes out all life on earth. And then starts again with this righteous man named Noah. Now, not counting the covenant in creation, this is the first covenant in the Torah. There's three of them in the Torah. The covenant is huge in the Old Testament. A covenant is a binding agreement between two parties. A, a new relationship is established is the point. So in his covenant with Noah, God, God guarantees he will never again repeat this type of devastation. The sign of the covenant is the rainbow. And it doesn't take long to realize the flood did not wipe out the conflict on the earth at all. First, there's conflict between Noah and his son Ham. Then there's conflict in the story of Babel, which ends in the dispersion of humans throughout the earth, separation, uh, different languages, the whole deal. So the point, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, they set the stage for the rest of the Torah. And we still have themes of crisis, and we still have themes of covenant, Genesis 12 through 50, but we add a couple themes as we move into these amazing, amazing stories, the patriarchs of the faith, that is Abraham, Sarah, and then their descendants. 
God calls these two childless senior citizens, Abram and Sarai, to leave their homes, to just set out. They don't even know where they're going. They don't know where they're headed, but God offered them a new covenant. He says, Abraham, if you follow me, I will promise you several things in this covenant. If this old, barren, childless couple, if they would leave their home and follow them, God promises they're going to have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. He, he promises their descendants will have land. It's not Abraham and Sarah that will have land, but his descendants will have land. But the single most important part of this promise is that God says, you and your descendants will have a very special blessing. He says, you are going to be blessed to be a blessing to others, meaning God's going to work with through them to bless other nations, it says, uh, other peoples. And so the couple, they agree, and they leave home, and they, they just go out, they follow God, and the rest of Genesis is the stories of the next generations. Abraham's family, these are the stories of, we call them the patriarchs, the, the, the great granddaddies of the faith. At the end of Genesis, Abraham's descendants, they're forced to move to e Egypt to survive a famine. But they still have these promises from God in the covenant. And that's how Genesis ends. We move right into Exodus. The people, they become as numerous as the stars in the sky. But that part of the covenant is fulfilled, but they don't have land. So the king of the land they're in, Egypt, he, he's threatened because there's so many of them. And so Abraham's descendants, they become slaves, God's children. The first eight, 16 chapters of Exodus describes how the slaves are set free. Then these chapters, we move into a new theme, and this is huge. It's, it's the theme of salvation, liberation. The Hebrews are liberated from slavery. The major themes to look for in this section, God's power over creation, liberation, how he saves Moses and the Hebrews, and then one important thing that we miss, we learn the name of God in Exodus. Exodus 3, 13 through 15, Moses said to God, if I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name, what shall I say? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. He said, further, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent to you. God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my title for all generations. Whenever you see the word Lord capitalized in the Old Testament, this is really important. If you we're, I'm going to want to teach you several things about your Bibles that maybe you don't know. If you see capital L-O-R-D in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word behind there is Yahweh. And that's God's name. It's, it's the verb to be in Hebrew. Hebrew doesn't have a future tense, and so it's I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. Whenever you see the word God in the Old Testament, the word behind that, the Hebrew word, is Elohim. And that's just a generic word for God. That's like our lowercase g-o-d. And so when Moses asks, which Elohim are you? And God replies, Yahweh. The Elohim of your ancestors, the Elohim of Abraham, the Elohim of Isaac, the Elohim of Jacob. Tell them Yahweh. 
sent you. I am. This is where we move from the story of a family in Genesis to the story of a nation in Exodus. And it's huge. There's a people. And Moses, who was called to lead this people, lead God's people from slavery, deliver them to the promised land. Moses was born a Hebrew slave, uh, ironically raised in Pharaoh's house as one of Pharaoh's sons. And he's forced to flee Egypt when he, he kills an Egyptian who he saw defending a, or um, going after a Hebrew slave. And then God calls Moses from burning bush in the wilderness, and he says, you need to go back to Egypt and set my people free. Moses did not want to do that. He came up with every excuse he could think of, but eventually he returns to Egypt, goes to Pharaoh, demands the Hebrews set the slaves free. Uh, the, the, the Egyptians set the Hebrew slaves free. Pharaoh says no. Moses responds, 10 plagues, if you remember the story, all upon Egypt, and these show God's, God's power over creation. And Pharaoh finally relents and sets, he says he'll set the people free, and then as they start to leave, Pharaoh has a change of heart, and he sends his army to pursue the Hebrews, and then God saves them once more by parting the Sea of Reeds, the Red Sea, long enough for God's people to slip through, and then the waves come down, crash down on the Egyptians, and they are destroyed. Now, you would think everything would be great after that. But it's just started. I mean, the conflict, it, it's, it, it ain't over. Moses, Moses is the leader of a very frightened, unhappy group of travelers. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And they complain over and over and over and over and over again. At times they just, they say, let's just go back to slavery in Egypt. I, you know, and they take their out, anger out on Moses. And eventually, they make it to Mount Sinai. It's also uh, Mount Horeb in, in Exodus 17. And the rest of Exodus into Leviticus basically describes what happens on that mountain. The main themes in this section are God's presence, God's covenant, the giving of the law, and then the calling and the setting aside of the priests. This is the longest part of the Torah, and, and to be honest, it's the part where, you know, so many people, they want to start with Genesis and read all the way to Revelation, and this is about where it bogs down. And it's thick. But there's so much in this section, if you understand it. Yahweh speaks to the people, and then to 74 leaders, and then he speaks with Moses alone, and, and this is the third major covenant of the Old Testament, this, it's the Sinai Covenant. This is where the Ten Commandments come from. The law is given. The law is a way of life. It's not what we think of as, you know, Washington State Code. You know, it, it's, it's, it's about being in right relationship with God. And, and God says for his part, he promises um, to be there. He promises to take care of them, well-being in the land. And, and the covenant sign is the Sabbath. They set aside a day of rest. Now, in addition to the law, like the Ten Commandments, the, the priesthood is established here. And this is important because the function of the priest is, it's, it's all about helping restore a relationship when it's been severed between God and the people. And, and this is really important because built into this is the, the, the concept that it's not if they break the law, it's not if they break relationship, it's when they break relationship. 
Because the law was supposed to help them be in right relationship with God. And so all the way back to the story of the creation of Adam, you know, the, everything's been about God wanting to be in relationship with his people. So, of course, God's going to include ways to restore that relationship when it gets broken. The whole point of the Torah is that God wants to be in relationship with us. In general, there's two types of laws, um, and if you understand how they work, there's actually great timeless truths in these that, that help us today. One type of law has to do with ethics. The other type of law has to do with ritual. And so it's right behavior and then right worship. Ritual laws are concerned with the relationship between humans and God, like the first half of the Ten Commandments. They're all about our relationship between us and God. The ethic laws, ethical laws, are, are about relationship from human to human, like the last half of the Ten Commandments. But there's also, there's economic laws, there's laws that describe how people are supposed to interact, uh, how to make an injury right. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. God wants his people to be concerned about behavior, is the point. Behavior is important. We read through these laws and, and we think, these don't have anything to do with me, Right? But there's, also a, there's always a deeper meaning that, that if, you, if you really reflect upon it, you're going to find how it pertains to your life. A great example, there's a law that what you're supposed to do if an ox, your ox scores your neighbor. And, you know, most of us don't have oxen, I don't think. But, you know, if, if, if and I was talking to somebody earlier today, if, if just got bit by a dog. If, if we have a dog that we know has the propensity to bite someone and we don't take care of that and, and you know, there's the, it speaks to us. Next, we come to the book of Numbers, which describes the journey from Sinai to the promised land. Two recurring themes in this section are God's faithfulness and humanity's unfaithfulness. And I hope that doesn't sound outdated. Numbers begins with the 10 chapters of preparation for the journey, and then it tells the story of this journey and, and the complaints of the people as they face difficulties like shortage of food and water. And, and, and we find in these stories, God always takes care of his people, always. Because this is our story as well. God calls us. God takes care of us. But then we forget over and over and over again. We forget. And then we start wandering in this wilderness of our own making until finally we find ourselves headed in a crisis with nowhere else to go. And so then we cry out to God and then God is faithful and God brings us back. God restores us. God takes care of us. No matter how much God provides the people, they walk away over and over and over and over and over again is the point. And there's points along that 40-year journey. Moses just wants to dump, you know, the people. And there's points when the people, they just want to dump Moses and get a new leader, you know, but they wander like this for 40 years. And there's a metaphor for us. When they finally do make it to the promised land, they're actually too afraid to enter because there's people living there. Story of Numbers is about rebellion of the people and what happens when people rebel against God. 
things go bad. But Numbers is also about how God cares for his children. Even when they rebel, he loves them. Miracles are a daily occurrence in this part of the Bible. God leads the people through the wilderness, pillar cloud by, uh, and pillar fire, and God feeds them, and God provides water for them. The final section of the Torah, like I said, is, is Moses' farewell speech, and that's the whole book of Deuteronomy. Moses has a lot to say. In Deuteronomy, Moses gives the history of the people, he remembers how God had set them free when they were slaves. Then he speaks to the people and he admonishes them for the past, but he also encourages them for the future as they enter into this promised land. And Moses blesses them. And then he pronounces some curses when they don't follow God. And then there's some more laws that are given, Deuteronomy 12 through 26. But then finally, Moses climbs up to the mountain all alone. He can see the promised land. And then he dies. There's a lot of things I'd like to say on that, but I won't. Um, we, we watched. Yeah, I'll shut up. Okay, that's the big picture of the Torah. There's this inner voice that just wants to come out sometimes, and my wife says, no. No. But the Torah, Torah is filled with, with stories that teach us about God is the point. They teach us God created us out of love, for love. They teach us that we were formed for relationship. And we learn it's human nature to break relationship. But it's always God's desire to restore relationship. And we learn that God expects his people to behave ethically. And we learn God cares how we treat each other, but also people who aren't like us. And God continually reminds the people to remember, you were foreigners in a foreign land once. I expect you to treat foreigners the way you were treated by God. And God cares how we treat creation. God cares how we treat his people, the animals, the land he created, all that God created. And we learn from God the act of setting people free from bondage that's even more important to God to be known for his salvation than for his creation, his creating activity. This is God's nature to set us free, is the point. And it's still what God wants to do today. This is the section Jesus drew from when he was asked, which of the commandments is the greatest, right? Uh, Jesus, he synthesized the Ten Commandments down to two. The first half, like I said, are all about human relationships with God. The second half of the Ten Commandments about humans interacting with humans. And he just said, what's the most important? Love God. What's the second? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the Ten Commandments in two. This section sets the stage for Jesus. He's the Savior, the Messiah. One of, one of God's main characteristics in the Torah is, is He's the God who saves. And when we break our covenant with God, God provides ways to restore relationship. And, and for the people that meant following a path of restoration that was clearly defined, clearly laid out, there was a sacrifice that the people would make so that they would know that they were set free. But that didn't work, right? And that's part of the reason he sent his son, so we wouldn't have to do that. 
because God in Christ sets us free from our bondage, just as God did for the Israelites thousands of years ago. There are so many timeless truths in the Torah, and, and, and we can learn from them, but, but it also helps us understand Jesus. It helps us understand what he taught, what he did. It all is rooted in the Torah. We need to read this book. We, we need to become a person of the book. And it's my dream that we become a church of the book. The Bible, it's a roadmap for us, for a life filled with joy and, and, and peace and purpose. It's a light to your feet. It's a lamp to your path. It, it will convict you. It will convince you. The Bible will comfort you. It will encourage you. If you study the Bible, you'll grow spiritually. And you'll learn to hear that still, small voice of God speaking to you through the pages, just as God spoke to the generations that precede us. And God will speak to the generations that come after us through this book. And I love that notion. And especially, you know, as we gather on Memorial Day weekend, you know, when I preach on a passage, I try to remember my dad growing up, you know, preaching on the exact same passage probably 30 years ago. And then my grandfather preaching on the same passage probably, you know, 60 years ago. And then my great-grandfather on my mom's side preaching on the same passage 80 or 100 years ago. Because the Bible is larger than us. It's bigger than us. And generation after generation, they have come to these words, they have come to the Bible in the midst of their pain, and in the midst of their heartache, and in the midst of their disappointment, and in the midst of their grief, and in foxholes, in, in hospital beds. They have read these words throughout the generation. God has cons consistently spoke to them. There is nothing else like this book. Over and over, every single generation has taken their hopes and their dreams and their fears to this book, and, and God, has, God has spoke to them. And, and the, they have passed it on to the next generation as a, a source of revelation. And today we celebrate those who have given so that we can be free. We celebrate those in the great cloud of witnesses. And we started this years ago, um, just an opportunity for us for remembrance. I don't know if you've lost someone who maybe died fighting in a war or nation, but also for those who have, have, have suffered a lot. I think it's so critical for us to pause and, and to think about those who have gone on, who reside in the great cloud of witnesses. I love the notion that Paul talks about in, in um, the letter of the Hebrews, where the previous generation, they have ran with the baton, and then they pass it back to us, and we grab that baton for a season. But then we're going to send it back to the next generation as we take our place in the cloud of witnesses. 
And I like to think of so many people who have meant so much to me. As, as it says in Hebrews, they're, they're cheering from the grandstands as we are running the race. It's our season. It's our time. But so many have gone before. Who is it that you are remembering today? I'm going to invite you to just come forth and have the opportunity to light a candle in remembrance. You join me in prayer, Lord, we thank you on this day for those who have gone before, those who have given, that we can continue. We thank you for the gift of the scripture, the stories of how you have been present, and especially on this Pentecost day, how you've been present throughout this amazing organization. It's so human, yet filled with your divinity, the, the church. We celebrate our history. We celebrate sacrifice. We celebrate your presence in your son's name. Amen. God, thank you.